Hello and welcome to the Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast. I'm your host, Dan French. Thanks for listening. The Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast is recorded before a live participatory audience. Plug into the Renaissance, connect with pros, and participate in the next episode live on our website at virginiasolarsummit.com slash livestream. The Virginia Solar Summit live stream is brought to you by Dominion Energy. Leveraging innovation for a clean energy future. Hashtag actions speak louder. Learn more at dominionenergy.com. As well as Mission Disposal. The essential site services company specializing in day-to-day supply and sanitation needs during solar and commercial construction. Learn more at missiondisposal.com. On today's episode, Tate McDonald, attorney and partner in the Washington, D.C. office of the global law firm Holland & Knight LLP. We discuss renewable energy policy, the public sector capital stack, and Ms. McDonald shares a tactical view forward from her vantage inside Washington, D.C.'s sausage-making machine. Without uh, further ado, I want to get to uh, today's special guest, Tate McDonald. She is, again, an attorney at Holland and Knight in their D.C. office. She's a member of the firm's public policy and regulation group. She focuses her practice at the intersection of innovation and government. That's why we're really excited to have her today. She's especially well-versed in running complex cross-governmental matters with intricate legal policy and financing components, Uh, so some of the most sophisticated stuff that's out there. She's highly knowledgeable in several areas, uh, not just energy technology, uh, but federal energy procurement, biofuels, cannabis, hemp, and uh, Defense Department contracting, which we're going to get into some of that, as well as a lot of work with DOE, uh, government grants, and loan guarantees. Uh, She was selected in 2019 as one of Holland and Knight's rising stars. Uh, She's a frequent writer uh, on all things renewable energy, military privatization, cannabis, and government finance. She's really looking far ahead. Um, and again, we're really happy to have her. She's a, she's a key player in DC and beyond. And uh, without uh, further ado, I gave, I said that before, but now we're really going to bring on Miss Tate McDonald. Tate, welcome to the show. Hope you're on mute. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And excuse my, excuse my voice. It's been a long week, as you can imagine, yeah, with the negotiations happening in Washington. But I'm excited to share some of what we already know. And I think there's some new things we'll be able to share as of this morning too. So excited to get into the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, we're uh, I, I gave you a bio, but I'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself and even begin, um, you know, before law school. What what brought you to law school, and how did you end up in the in the key place that you are today? Um, speak maybe to some of the young folks that might be listening now or later. How did you get into uh, energy and get excited about our energy, our new energy future? Yeah, great question. So I decided early on that I wanted to go to law school. I did not want to be a traditional lawyer. And I didn't want to take the route that lawyers typically take. So my second year of law school, I took the entire year, of course, to make sure I passed law school, (laughs) make sure nothing happened there. But I really took the entire year to explore careers and whatever, what folks who were really moving the needle were doing it with a law degree. And I was really fortunate enough to find after that year, um, I found friends who were working at a small lobbying shop. And at that point working on Detropa, which is a indigenous weed that you can turn into biofuels. 
that never, of course, moved forward in the U.S. But um, it, basically, after I found a lobbying firm that had a Jatropa client, and I lobbied for a day on biofuels on Capitol Hill. And after that day in a summer internship, I realized this was going to be my career. So today I am, I've developed, a, and then later in my career, I realized there were a lot of lobbyists in town, but not a lot of people that understood federal agencies and clean technology. So that's essentially how over the past, and why over the past 10 years, I've built out a executive branch um, niche on energy and clean technology commercialization. So that's where we are today. And it, today my practice includes, basically, if, I like to think about it this way. What are other people not doing that's going to move the needle? And that's where my, me and my team, I'm fortunate enough to have a wonderful team at Holland and Knight of um, just a really supportive team that all shares the same vision that I do. And really what we do is we jump in and we get our hands dirty when it might be, others might be scared away or it might be too complicated or it might be seen as impossible. Um, that's when we jump in and really get our hands dirty. Whether some is on the lobbying front traditionally, some is traditional law, but the majority is um, strategic consulting to health companies and policymakers, quite frankly. Yeah, I can second that. Uh, I'm fortunate to know you and several of the folks at Holland and Knight, and it's you know it's great to see. Uh, we've been really picking up a lot of momentum since the biofuel biofuel days. Folks might know I started my career in energy at BP in the, in the Beyond Petroleum days. We were doing a lot of biofuels. I was at the facility where we had a test track around our office. It was crazy. You could hear them out there running the engines. Um, and we've come, a, we've come a long way since then. So I saw the news out today. President Biden's talking about 1.75 trillion dollar proposal. Can you um, talk a little bit about fe the federal legislative sausage making that, that's been going on and just kind of give us a read from your inside view? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start really high level with what's in the framework today, as of today. So great and great news for solar, quite frankly, because we knew there would be, so of course the framework that's announced today that just got publicized is a high level framework. It's 2.5 pages. And really what it means is this is the agreement that staff are now going to negotiate and write to. So write a legislation in, on Senator Manchin's part, what his staff oversees what was previously going to be two to $300 billion will now be written down based upon this framework. And now his staff are going to write the legislation that will encompass that reduced number. Now, $300 billion was the ENR number under the $3.5 trillion framework. And now we're at half of that. So presumably we are at least at $150 billion that just Senator Manchin's staff has to run, has to write to. Some of that may change. Some things are getting cut more than others. So don't hold me to that, but that is definitely where we are. We are in that vicinity of a very, very significant amount of money. So the bottom line is that um, the, and the one other thing that happened yesterday is the clean energy tax credits are a huge component of this framework. Now, extensions on solar and wind and traditional, I don't know where those are gonna land, but the good news is, is I think the number this morning is 550 billion. So we're still, on, we're still untangling as much as we, we can 
we won't know obviously until we see full text and we start to hear more from staff today, tomorrow, the remainder of this week. But right now, at least we know we are in the world of the largest climate um, legislation that we've ever seen as a country, plus what is in the bipartisan bill. So this is just what's in the reconciliation bill. And as a standalone would be the highest amount alone, plus we have another, um, another 100 billion plus in the, um, in the reconciliation bill. So just a significant, or in the bipartisan bill, in the bill that they may vote on right away. So the bottom line is a significant amount of dollars are going to start flowing through the Department of Energy, through the Department of Agriculture, and not as much through the Department of Defense, but just more money than we've seen in the space ever by far. Yeah, and can we maybe work backwards through the capital stack and, and talk about all the spending um, since the Biden, new Biden administration has come really since the pandemic started. Um, some of it's not related to solar renewable energy at all, but uh, but specifically like DOE, they're putting out a lot of grants and things. And um, have before all this legislation, the the public sector is more um, more resource uh, yeah more resource than they have been you know and maybe any time that I can remember. Yeah, and I mean what I always say. So the bottom line is the bills before this. I won't. I, the bills before this were significant for recovery, right? They were only focused on essentially mitigation. And so these bills are gonna be, are the two big, are the two recovery bills. Let me be clear on this. Before it was COVID mitigation. So the thing about COVID mitigation is the fact that it's all just going to like schools, local governments. But what I always say on these is uh, when you have so much money flowing through the federal government, it's inevitable that some of it's gonna to move to energy. So I will say in those bills, you don't have line items, you don't have items around energy or clean tech or solar, but what you do have is you have a rising tide floats all boats and energy being key in really the world that we're living in as a whole, especially with what happened with the Texas storms last year. So the bottom line and what you, what you are already seeing out, what you are seeing out last year is actually just is actually just the old annual money that we will still have. Energy and clean technology gets about three billion dollars annually. Has for the last um, has for on average it was two billion until about four years ago. It in, it actually increased in areas like CCUS and nuclear when Trump was in office. Um, and now so now so it's three billion dollars annually now plus the loan guarantee programs that while they haven't administered loans um, and haven't been up and running and now are, that program ha has 40 billion. So that is our baseline. That is our baseline of what we had before these bills. And now when you break apart the, and let me start with the bipartisan bill that will pass first. When you break apart the bipartisan bill that will pass first, it will be about um, 10 to $20 billion more a year for the next five years. So it is real significant money just in the first bill that will pass first. And then now on the second bill, we have a framework that came out today. They're, they need to draft that and then that will pass. We don't know the timing because I think Biden's meeting with the Progressive Caucus right now still. So we don't know the timing, but just first bill, lots of money, second bill, more. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then look, is, is there any other legislation that's floating out there? Like next, uh, we just had, you know, with the chip crisis, we've had all these supply chain issues and we'll get to that. We'll talk about China um, and other things, but it began with silicon wafers and just chips. And we're still doing that. We did, we had, a, we saw Congress move pretty swiftly. I think it was a $50 billion standalone bill um, to help uh, spur domestic manufacturer of silicon wafers. Uh, I think maybe uh, Senator Ossoff has, has proposed legislation you might be familiar with yep. uh, to do something similar on solar. Uh, I don't know if the tariffs are going away anytime soon, um, but can you talk about maybe both of those things? We're kind of crimping our foreign imports at the same time uh, pivoting towards uh, more public investment in domestic production. Yeah, great question. So, we're so the bottom line is, how do I want to how do I want to start this? So it's complicated. With my voice being the way it is, how do I want to say this that will be related appropriately? But the bottom <laughs> line is the um, with the innovation bill. So there is a tr competitiveness bill as well. So the, there's three big pieces of legislation sitting out there. And what happens in Washington is you have standalone legislation, and then it all starts to get compiled into these larger bills. So the three large bills sitting out there are the, two, uh, the bipartisan, the reconciliation, and then the one I did not mention is the Competitiveness Act, also known as the China Bill. Now the term for it is Competitiveness Act before it was the China Bill. So, and that is where semiconductors are mostly going to be taken care of. Now we don't know what the, what the world of possibility for that bill is going to be in the China Bill after these other two pass. So that is the third piece of legislation. It is bipartisan that's still sitting out there. That's all the, this amalgamation of all these other pieces of legislation. Now, good news, of course, again, we don't have the writing. This is just what we are hearing. And it's, it, it's alluded to in the framework. The good news is we think that the SEMA bill, the Ossoff bill, will actually be in reconciliation number two. So everything we are hearing is that Ossoff and SEMA for domestic solar manufacturing will be in the reconciliation bill, which is huge. So it was not in the House version of the reconciliation bill, but uh, everything we're hearing is that it will be in this one. Now, I haven't heard an update this morning. I just don't might have changed yesterday with all the chaos, but everything we we're hearing until yesterday was that it would be in there. Now, the question though, that we're still going back and forth on, but the framework looks good, is you have traditional domestic solar manufacturing, then you have innovative. And are we gonna be able to have both is, is definitely the outstanding question still. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was stunned by that. Um, and you read my mind, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Can we pivot, talk, talk about innovation? Um, I know you look broadly at these issues like I do. I call it a renaissance. Our audience knows that. Um, but at this particular moment in time in history, uh, we've seen a trade war. It's targeted on solar. And at the same time as we just were talking about, we've turned on our spigot uh, for, for domestic investment. And there is a lot of innovation happening out there. There are a lot of companies. They've been in, you know, a long time, second, third, fourth generation. Uh, the Valley's been at, hard at work trying to uh, to take solar to the next level, and it's starting to happen. Um, we've yeah. seen some facilities. First, solar broke ground on a facility in Ohio. Um, Tape. What are you seeing out there in, in innovation? Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm actually trying to look at the exact numbers on the framework. 
um, not 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 paying attention. So the bottom line is innovate solar innovation in particular is ready. I mean, we've been through, I mean, solar's, I will say, I don't, well, I do admit this more often, but my one of the first things I did at my previous firm was Solyndra. So my career actually started with the Solyndra <laughs> transaction. And um, actually, so and I told somebody this the other day, the first year, six months of when I started doing this work, I did both Tesla and Solyndra, which is like the, the best example, the worst example. So I said, that's how I became the encyclopedia for everything good and bad about the DOE loan program office. But the bottom line is that, um, so because I worked, we worked on Solyndra, when I was at Wilson Cincinnati before I came to Holland and Knight, um, the we've I've got I've talked to probably every solar company that's trying to domestically manufacture or worked with at some point. So, but the good news is, and all of that's to say, we I think we are finally here, and the support is finally going to be there for it. Before we had issues with technology because you can't advance technology without money going into technology. And what essentially happened because of how, I won't get into too many of the dorky details, but because of how China essentially funded solar manufacturing and double downed on solar manufacturing in China, the US and entrepreneurs thought, oh, we don't need any more, right? We don't need any more, like we, and we're not gonna invest anymore. It's, it's so funny because the last three years we've been working on perovskites and commercialization of uh, um, solar perovskites. And when that started, even the companies we were working with could not get investment, right? Because they thought, everybody thought, oh, there's enough solar, everything is fine. And from an investment world, when you really looked at the, the numbers, what we're seeing now, and we've been talking about on Capitol Hill, exactly what we've been seeing now for three years, because when you really dug into the numbers about how much solar we need to even get close to the world's net zero goals, there's just not enough with what's being manufactured now. So essentially what's happening now is not just supply chains and COVID, it's what was inevitable anyway. So now what was inevitable anyway is now a real time issue in addition to tariffs and supply chain. So the bottom line is just that that has actually that coming to the forefront has actually in the past two years driven investment in next generation innovative solar. And then that investment is now moving the technology forward. Now, you can't just have investment in technology. You also need to have policy. So now what we're working on is the policy and the support from the government to really move, to really catapult that forward. But I will say we are so much further along than we've ever been. And I think the pieces are finally coming together for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, really important points and really well said, we have the recipe kind of right now and uh, and we everything is kind of lined up. This, this trend has been in place. We've seen Chinese, China losing manufacturing for 10 years or so leaking to other countries in South East Asia, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, elsewhere, um, their population's aging, they're, they're pivoting their economy to more consumption and these things anyway. Um, and the United States has been the number one country for foreign direct investment going on 10 years. So really since the last energy crisis coming out of peak oil and all that $150 oil, 2008 and nine, from 2010 on foreign 
companies have been investing in the United States, including intensive industry. Uh, intensive energy intensive industry, a lot of chemical facilities down on the Gulf Coast from, from China, um, building their polluting industries here to be regulated by our, our EPA, even though they don't have an EPA in China, that's becoming less and less true going forward. Um, but because we have the cheapest industrial electricity in the world, we have, we still do. Um, and I don't think that that competitive picture, uh, that, that competitive landscape is still in place. Um, and that, so that 10 year trend, all these tariffs and everything come on that 10 year trend, um, to come back to, to what you were saying, like now we're leaning in now we have public policy that's coming in. We've, uh, we've seen companies kind of coming in fits and starts, but now they've got, they're commercializing, they're going to scale. Uh, and it's a really, it's hard. It's, I get really excited about this stuff and I'm plugged in like you every day, but I don't even think I have conceptualized what it really means over the, over the next few years, especially if these bills in Congress uh, really go through these bipartisan bills and some of the states like Virginia continue to lean in. Uh, we really can go build all this, all this solar that we want to do if we have enough uh, people uh, that is. Uh, so we have some workforce challenges, but can we pivot maybe uh, to some of the land land use issues as well? There's a lot of innovation happening in Superfund, uh, other agencies of government, but DOE and, and others are getting excited about you know, solar redevelopment using our landfills and mine lands and things like that. Um, and that may help us keep our balance between the old real estate development versus conservation question. Like, are we going to tear up the farm, the cornfields for su suburbs? Are we going to repeat our mistake and tear up more cornfields for solar farms? Or can we re reuse our land? Can you, can you think through that kind of sustainability lens with respect to land use? Yeah, great question. So the bottom line is that the bottom line is that we have where we are right now. Yes, we have a land use conundrum and we have limitations, but where we are right now is that I would take, I would say we're at like two or three levels down of starting to look at all of our other options, right? Like if you look, so in the bipartisan bill, there's $500 million for renewable energy development on former mine lands. So that is going to actually spur development. That's going to open up a significant amount of land just by having that capital available to be able to, to encourage development on those mine lands. So that is number one, that's definitely occurring, will not stop. Number two is going to be the unused federal lands. So what we're going to see is BLM, and the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense actually has a significant amount of land that they can use through enhanced, what's called enhanced use leases to actually develop solar throughout the country as well. So the bottom line is we just have to get more creative, right? As you move forward with any type of development, we just have to get more creative. And that's what we see going on now. Like before there was a, there was, ample amount of land that could be used for solar, should be used for solar, was just sitting there. Now we're starting to see, and this has started, this actually started to occur about five years ago. I think it's definitely, um, it's at the next level now, especially when we try to get to net zero 2050 goal. We did, there's no other option but to look at these other sources. But those, those types of land in particular, I think is really gonna be what and I'm not as familiar with Superfund. I won't say I'm a Superfund. Um, I don't even want to go to Superfund. I have too many other things. No one does. Up. No one does. Exactly. That's <laughs> why I'm like, 
I will stay away from that. I have plenty of colleagues who can, but on the, especially unused Department of Defense land and the DOE grants on mining land, those are two things that we are actively working on that we will see an uptick in in the next two years. Absolutely, especially in Virginia, um, where they have a, a very successful, I think one of the country's best brownfield programs where they've had some leadership there like Meet Anderson, Vince Maiden, thinking about brownfields to bright fields for many years now. Um, and then the new, the formerly uh, DMME, Virginia DMME is now the Division of Energy, and they have a new program that will fund um, or help fund these solar redevelopments. Although there's a there's a hitch in there, as Tate, you probably know, they have to get the money from Washington before they will fund that state program. Um, but there's a lot of great brownfield programs in states across the country, uh, and we're seeing that. Um, and I think that, you know, Solyndra, especially in solar, um, I think that the public the, the argument about whether we should or should not encourage this type of growth and development, I think it really is bipartisan. And we're seeing kind of that we've reached critical mass on that, just like brownfields, which always sails through unopposed. It's always 99-0 in the Senate because people really get there is a, a strong public interest to play. And even looking back at Solyndra, um, which I didn't know that, that you were there for that, but uh, that program made the government money, right? So that portfolio overall- so The program as a whole makes the government it, money. Not yeah. only, yes. yes it has they, not lost a dime compared yeah. to, oh, you don't even want to get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think people don't understand though, like Solyndra just has a bad name, but that that portfolio that Solyndra was in actually made, not taking that Solyndra loss, that they still made money. And by the way, got spurred all that innovation as well. Um, and of course you mentioned Tesla too, they paid their loans back early. That is the best example. Um, yep. but DOE's well, doing so, fun, so I did a, um, podcast actually that will be published soon with the first director of the loan program just last week. Awesome. And, um, the, but the bottom line though, is that that's what it comes down to is that not only did we not lose money, but like, these are the, the initial transactions out of LPO at that time are the transactions that changed the world. There's a great op-ed it's Peter Davidson and Jonathan Silver, um, that was published in the Hill last week and or two weeks ago, and then we did the podcast last week. But the bottom line is those transactions did change the landscape of the U.S. The LPO through Jigger Shaw's leadership will change the landscape next. And we every year when we give grants away, and then we don't have a place for that technology to commercialize, that's essentially two billion dollars of grants we're giving away a year. What's we need to have a way for that technology to commercialize in the US. We can't just let that stop, right? And that's what that's what these bills and the Biden administration is focusing on, that it's not only climate, it's not only about climate, it's about innovation and American leadership. And that's what people, that's what gets re people really excited on both sides of the aisle, that clean technology and especially even solar, um, because I, I think a lot, I think first everybody agreed on PCUS, nuclear, like then hydrogen was added to the mix. Now everybody's starting to agree that things like solar are also American innovation and can be bipartisan as well. 
Yeah, I think the private sector lining up uniformly, you know, uh, the bipartisan corporate interest, if you will, literally everybody's on board. And with ESG, we see now investors pushing from the top down. It's just inevitable. Um, this is this is a growth segment. We have you know hundreds of thousands of people working in solar now, over two hundred thousand. Um, there's only fifty so or fifty five thousand coal miners left. Um, so we've already already tipped the scales. Uh, and we need solar, uh, you know, in some places uh, really badly. Can, I was very interested to learn about your work down in Puerto Rico, speaking of climate, um, and we're, we're focused on Appalachia. We have similar markets of distress all, all over the, the, the place. And uh, Louisiana, there were places in Louisiana after the last storm a couple months ago, they didn't get their power back for a month. Um, and after Hurricane Maria, of course, I've spent some time in Puerto Rico myself. Um, a place I know and care about. We can really use solar for, I mean, we're, we're talking about making Wall Street money, the private sector is in, investing in these projects. There's there's return on investment and capitalist system is taking over. But also, there, you know, on when, when we're talking about mine lands and these other things, uh, places like Puerto Rico, we can really, you know, use solar um, for, for community benefit, direct community benefit. Can you, can you share a little bit with us about, uh, you went down after Hurricane Maria and yeah, so I did a little bit of uh, work in Puerto Rico just simply because it's another unfinanceable. So again, going back to my sweet spot, how can you make things that are un that should be financeable and can be financeable or are almost financeable, financeable, right? Using different types of policy levers. And what was interesting about Puerto Rico and why the bottom line is that if you actually, let me put it this way. If you, it is going to be one of the most complicated redevelopment structures, there's a lot of benefit that can come from renewable, but because of the utility landscape and government landscape, though it, it will continue to be an effort to overcome and rebuild. And it just goes back to Puerto Rico as a whole. But the bottom line is just that it will be so. A few years ago, we were very excited as Puerto Rico being the baseline of rebuilding essentially from a from an energy innovation perspective and kind of, I would say, almost a demonstration or proving grounds. And a lot of us were really excited for it. The lands, the government landscape in Puerto Rico makes that a bit more of a challenge at the end of the day, and it just makes it go slower. So the bottom line is it did, it hasn't moved as fast as some of us were hoping it would. But at the end of at now, we should start seeing rebuilding in this net zero capacity. But then, of course, COVID halted it more and made it more difficult, too. So the good news is, do I think we'll get there with Puerto Rico? Yes. Did it go as fast as people wanted it to be to kind of be the net zero proving grounds? No, but that's um, unfortunately in our industry, that's pretty much always how it goes, right? So, but we are getting, but the one thing, and I always go back to um, uh, Ruth, not to, I always go back to a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote, where like real change, enduring change happens one step at a time. So the bottom line is it's still happening one step at a time. It's just one step at a time. Yeah, <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I think uh, Puerto Rico has unique challenges that continental markets don't face. Uh, going back to foreign direct investment, but also just you know capital investment, we're seeing huge gigafactories being being built, uh, car companies. 
building huge facilities, you know, in the US, that's where, you know, the workers are, and that's where the, the power needs to be generated. And with states like Virginia leading in and other states, Illinois just passed a big bill. Um, in those markets, we'll see, continue to see lots of activity. Um, if, if I mean, the opportunity for Appalachia, I think far out, it far exceeds even the opportunity in Puerto Rico, especially what's in these bills. So going back to kind of, yes, Puerto Rico, there was a lot of excitement. It was a few steps ahead. But I mean, I think the opportunity for Appalachia far exceeds just because the structure of the government, the unique challenges in Puerto Rico, like I was trying to politically correctly <laughs> allude to in a politically correct manner. But the bottom line is just Virginia and Appalachia as a whole, the opportunities are so immense, especially with what's in these bills moving forward. So it's just a really exciting time to be in this market and doing what we're doing. And I think in areas like Appalachia, I'm so much more excited about that work because you don't have those constraints that complexities that can be ultimately become complete bottlenecks. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a broader sweep, um, like the work of the IWG and otherwise there's a lot of, of state, local, state, federal, and, and even local exactly. support, you know, for these projects. And it's getting swept up in kind of the economic development uh, renaissance more widely defined. You know, there's just a lot of innovation happening in, in across all supply chains, you know, med medical supply chains. Um, we're, we just don't have enough people. There's 10 million open jobs. Uh, we really have to speak to the young people and get them to understand there's a lot of jobs out there. Of course, rising wages would help. Um, but it's incredible to see all this, all this investment, uh, back in 2010, you know, when Tesla was needing those loans, we just, we didn't think that we would get to a, a position like this, but now, uh, we've really shifted to a demand economy or generation of, um, no, de no demand supply side economics and all this. And it, it's funny how quickly, well, we ha we've had these long-term trends, but then we've somehow reached critical mass. Maybe it was the pandemic and suddenly we have way more demand, um, that, that we can even deal with. Uh, I saw record record uh, cargo process through the LA ports last month, but it's not enough. Um, you know, we're still, it's still slow. It's, it's amazing how the news, you know, focuses on, on that, but the pie is bigger than ever. The growth is bigger than ever. Everyone I talk to is busier than ever. There's more money than ever. Interest rates are still zero. Washington's finally got its act together. I mean, what am I missing here? I, when I look at the future, I see a lot of growth. I see a huge, huge pie. Don't even get me started on space, you know, the billionaire race that, that you know, it's billionaires uh, egos, but it's gonna, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's 1200 space startups in the Valley right now. So there's a lot, the industrial sector, real industrial real estate is on fire. Um, this is a potent, potent recipe for Renaissance. Tate, I get really excited. What, what do you, like, can you look ahead a little bit like these, we may have a slowdown in solar. I started out with that headline, increased costs may, may cancel. There may be some people who have their solar panel seized at the, at the terminals, <laughs> but yeah. uh, even yeah, with Silicon wafers takes about 18 months to boot up a new facility. So can we skate ahead a little bit? Look out five years. Um, and can you forecast a little bit economic growth to clean tech? I mean, you're doing cannabis too. So think big with me. Like we got a big pie that we're going to have to, Look at yeah, and it's funny because I started, I did a little bit of the cannabis work in the Trump administration and the clean tech. Now I can't even, in fact, it, one of the, my team members just this week was like, 
you're not even doing any cannabis work anymore. I'm like, I know because there's no time for it because of all the clean tech work. So, so, and the, that's a whole nother story for another day, but the bottom line on clean tech, especially, and the reason why that we end, I ended up doing some of that work is it's so analogous to clean tech the development and deployment and industry. So I actually think what we're going to see is uh, with that is five to 10 years. And then the next one to five is going to be really focused on this clean tech renaissance, especially with what's coming out of the bills. And it's really what's coming out of the bills in combination with corporate entities moving because before you would have corporate entities, essentially, you would have corporate entities do, doing a few press releases, right? And now you have corporate entities really he heavily weighing in to projects as a whole. Like um, I'm fortunate enough that the Unite, when you get on a United plane, those projects are projects I've worked on that they highlight. It was funny just yesterday, another client is doing some work with United. I was like, don't break my streak. Like, let me be able to say that still that I was like, please. So you're going to help my streak. But the bottom line is like, it's these corporates weighing in and these corporates actually putting their money where their mouth is, that is really going to get this over the finish line too, because you need that market uptick. And the other thing about why this is changing in clean tech is everybody's had time to understand like how to contract what we should be contracting versus what we shouldn't be contracting, how to do a contract. Because all of these contracts with the adoption of renewable energy of all types and clean tech of all types are all completely different than you traditional utility contracts. So we, they have to evolve one by one. And the difference means they're not financeable. So the bottom line is that when you put all of these, like I used to always say that a lot of the deals I do have that 10% gap missing. So now with an, in, and even now deals that have a 20% gap, like if I always say, I was said to someone last night, think about if you had like 20% off a home or 20% free cash in a home, how much bigger of a house could you, and a mortgage could, could you afford, right? A much bigger mortgage. And so, and then you could get a bigger house that you couldn't get. So that's what's happening with the complexities of these deals, like this money going in, the corporates going, the government bond money and policy going, coming in, the corporates coming in to participate. That's what's really driving these deals that couldn't get over the finish line before that will enable them to get over the finish line now. Now you brought up workforce. And I think it's a really important point. The other reason why I think now we are in a position to do a lot of this work in the U.S. that we weren't before is because of automation. What, so, and yes, there's still job needs, there's still labor needs. But when I started doing this 10 years ago, it did make a lot more sense for the jobs and the work to go elsewhere because we just didn't have the jobs that could make the deals essentially work at the end of the day. We didn't have the right labor force for it. Now, I think with the combination of automation and all these things we do. The robots are coming and the drones and everything else. We're gonna need a lot of electricity everywhere. <laughs> that future forecast, holy cow. Um, but can we, um, can we zoom in maybe on the tactical level, um, get into some of the deals, like what are some of the trends? Um, what are some of the important you know, details that, that you're seeing? Um, in your work, I'm, I've seen a lot of locals getting getting involved, not not to uh, go specifically to that, but just as an example, 
Um, there was a county in Indiana. I saw they they passed an ordinance that you know solar developers shall install pollinator friendly habitats when they develop solar. I heard about a deal, I think in Virginia, about a community kind of at the last minute putting in an ordinance about sourcing their supply uh, from uh, uh, places, district jurisdictions, excuse me, uh, that are abusing their labor. So that's, that's about the Uyghurs in China, um, yeah. which I'd never really seen from a community before. Very savvy, uh, and sophisticated and locals kind of rule. This is still, when we're talking about solar development, it's still just real estate, it's economic development and the locals rule. It goes back to common law, uh, not to bring up bad memories from law school, but uh, uh, what are you seeing today? You're the professional out there putting deals together. It's just kind of an open question, but uh, zoom into the tactical legal for us and, and give us your perspective. Yeah, what, I hate to, so what we're seeing is there's going to be a crunch near term. There's going to be, it's what we're seeing in the, in the headlines about projects getting delayed and projects not being able to get solar panels, solar panels being um, seized at the, at the borders. We are going to continue to see this issue because we have this issue where, and Again, it's near-term pain, long-term gain, right? It's not that this is going to stop, but we are going to continue, and we are going to continue to see this dilemma essentially that we need to work around. And this is why this is why this morning we were so excited to see. Even it's an issue we've been working on. It's an issue we weren't promised anything on, quite frankly with solar manufacturing in particular, domestic solar manufacturing, especially for more innovative. Um, but we are super excited to see it in the framework this morning because it just shows that they're finally, that the administration is taking the issue seriously because in working on um, the solar advocacy, what we always end with is like, we've got to do it now. It is a problem now, we have to do it now. And that problem isn't going to fix itself overnight. The way these bills work and the way when, like you said, when we put these deals together and when we're trying to put these deals together, like we're putting, the even putting a deal together now, you're building for two years and you're not producing product for another two years. So we are, we are seeing the components of the deal being able to be put together for the first time in a long time. But that doesn't mean we're going to get the product anytime soon. And that's what's really important about this, if you may, is to realize like, just because there's going to be a long, a short-term crunch, doesn't mean there's not long-term solutions, that medium-term solutions. So just, and the medium-term solutions are coming together faster than ever, but it's still going to be time. But these, I just can't stress enough. And I am, I'm, handed to a fault on this topic. So if anybody hears me in any other venues, they'll know if I'm saying I'm, I'm finally really excited about this after the last nine years, 10 years of just thinking there can't possibly, like we knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to get here, but I did not think it would happen this quickly and this promising with this many tools in the toolbox of the deal after what we went through the past 10 years. 
Yeah, it's amazing. In quantum physics, there's this concept of critical mass. You know, it's like yeah. little, little, it means nothing, it means nothing. And then all of a sudden you cross that zero point zero zero one percent and it it explodes. And and yeah. yeah. And I really think that we've we've reached that. And I I hear everything I hear supports what you're saying about the big crunch. So I hope folks are reaching out to Holland and Knight. Uh, it's a very important this next 18 months, month period. There's going to be a lot of news coming from DC. Uh, the final shape of these bills, how quickly you know things get implemented, and um, there's there's some other you know news coming about the tariffs and these other things. So we're just we're gonna have to stay on top of it. I hope contracts don't get busted, and you guys are dealing with force majeure clauses and and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of legal that gets involved. I think as our very smart audience knows, you know, lease options on land and 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 all kinds of things. Um, so we're going to go to our final segment here, start dropping your questions in the chat and we'll go to them one by one, but Tate, I do want to give you an opportunity to, to look ahead, um, speak to the children of the future or, or you know, something like that. How are we going to, how are we going to get, get through this crunch and what does it look like on the, on that other side, five, 10 years from now, looking back, you know, what, what do you think, um, this next kind of medium cycle is, is going to look like? Yeah. So that's a great question. So. The reason why I came to Holland and Knight, and the reason why I so actually a funny part to start is that I went to law school saying I would never, ever be a big law firm partner, <laughs> ever. I thought I literally was the only one. Everybody else wanted to be a big law partner. And I was like, nope, not for me. Not, I'm going to go save the world, right? But the bottom line is that you need lawyers to save the world and lawyers need to put the deals together to save the world. And it is usually the big law firms that do that. It is the big law firms at the end of the day to do that. So I'm incredibly fortunate to have found my niche that fits within something of this, that I can do work of this magnitude in a really exciting way. But I say that because when I came to Holland at night after I, I went to my old firm saying I'd go to there for one year and leave. So this was even after law school. I said, I'm never going to a big firm. And, um, but then I still stayed at a big firm and I came over to Holland and Knight. And the reason why I did it is because of Holland and Knight's platform with regard to local government, the, the, the transportation and the, what I'm getting to is what we are gonna start to see and I'm super excited about and which is what gets us up in the morning and we're already starting to see happen is essentially energy is everywhere. Energy and clean technology are going to be everywhere. It's in your schools, it's in your, it's in the airports. It's on, now it's on unused mine land. Who knew we were gonna go there so quickly, right? It is everywhere and it is integrated into everything. The challenge with this are the financing constructs, right? But like I said, I've said multiple times, we are so much further along. So. What's going to happen from these bills is you're going to see the energy and clean technology revolution essentially happen in a way that we haven't seen any energy revolution happen because it's not just one solution. Now it's efficiency, now it's solar, and now with net zero objectives, we have to put everything together into one package. So like when you think about how you make an airport terminal zero carbon. It's not just green building anymore. We're trying to go to zero carbon. And that's the kind of work um, my colleagues and I are doing across the sector. And we're just really, really excited for more of it. Because so my point is to say, 
now it's not just standalone projects. Now, and like when you look at how to make a city net zero and how to make um, states net zero, that that is so complex and it's and it really stretches across everything. Like when I sit in DC net zero um, DC meetings about how DC is going to be net zero, it stretches across everything. It's not just a standalone project. So we started with standalone projects. Where we are now and where the future is going to be is st the standalone projects in combination with these fully integrated projects across all aspects of our lives. I hope that sums it up well. Yeah, beautifully, uh, beautifully well said. I think that's absolutely right. It's just going to trickle into every aspect of our lives. That's why I call it a renaissance. It's you know the fourth industrial revolution, uh, the pre-Jetsons economy. I haven't even mentioned flying cars yet. <laughs> um, but there's way too, you know, we've got a, you know, 20 some trillion dollar US economy, a hundred trillion dollar global economy, that's going 200 trillion, that's going 300 trillion. Uh, uh, Bezos and Blue Origin were out there talking about a, a floating space station, where you'll be able to rent space. I mean, these projects are being planned, people don't understand. Uh, and it's really going to happen fast, again, because the money's there. Um, how much does a Disney Princess cruise liner cost, you know? Uh, they spend $900 million building a cruise ship. Tell me they won't spend a billion dollars to build a floating hotel. Um, so the world's about to look a lot different. We're going to need a lot more electricity and you, you're spot on in everything that you said. We're going to need big law. <laughs> we're going to need big corporations <laughs> because we're really going to need everybody. And I think that's the message. Um, but young people too, uh, they're not, they're not inspired enough, or maybe I just want everybody to get as, as excited about me, uh, uh, excited about this stuff as I, as I am. Um, because if they don't buy in, we're just we're we're going to start to you know choke on on the Renaissance, not have enough people to do these projects. Um, but shout out to one of our sponsors, Mission Disposal. They're really they're in Virginia and elsewhere, making uh, making it real, getting local contractors to plug into these projects. Is when you go build utility scale solar, you need a lot of people. Um, so there's no reason that the communities can't you know, benefit directly from the jobs uh, and then longer term in these things. All right, so I've spoken a lot. Tate, really great dialogue between you and me, but I want to turn it over to the audience now. Who's ready? I'm going to ask like Dan Miller, uh, you first, but uh, if you have a question, drop it in the chat and I'm going to go one by one. If you want to turn on your camera, introduce yourself. Um, we're going to go long if you have the time today. I know Tate can stick around. So um, if you want to ask your own question, now's the time. Turn on your camera and audio. Come into the show. Come into the Renaissance. Um, but I'll ask your question for you. I don't see, I see Dan. I'm going to give him maybe, maybe three more seconds. I'm going to ask his question for him. Um, <laughs> cool. So Dan was asking, uh, no, there he is. Mr. Miller, come into the conversation. Welcome. Yeah. Good morning. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah. Introduce yourself first. Tell us uh, who you're with and, and uh, where you're from. Yeah. I'm with Potestan Associates in Morgantown, West Virginia. And um, my background is, a little bit divergent from solar energy. I'm an aquatic biologist, but I Potesta does engineering and environmental work throughout the um, Appalachian area region. And um, we've been working with some, well, there's a lot of solar interest in these mine lands that you have been talking about and working with the Department of Energy here within the state and yeah. the development office of West Virginia um, we've got some huge uh, landowners that 
aren't effectively using their properties for income because mining has terminated. They've either mined out most of the coal or it's no longer economical. So we've been talking with a lot of these landowners and asking them, you know, of their interest in doing solar. And initially, and there still are some people out there that just say, no, you know, coal is our heritage. Coal is our, coal is our history and coal is our future. Um, but I think the majority of them are realizing how times are changing. And it, it really is a reality on, on having to modify the way we produce our electricity. And, and the, a couple of these um, Western Pocahontas Land Corporation, that's one of the big ones. And, and they're, they've got like mother companies, but they own tens of thousands of acres and are willing to uh, negotiate with some of these solar firms that are interested in leasing, you know, 20, 25, 30 year leases where they can get, you know, what might be um, I'll just throw out a thousand dollars an acre per year. That's something that probably is within the ballpark. And when you don't have to lift a finger and someone's going to give you a thousand dollars per acre per year uh, for 25 years, that's something to at least consider. So that that's where we are. And um, I, I'm basically just looking for putting together the landowners that would like to do that. And then the solar developers that are, are successful at doing that. And we've got, there's one in particular that happens to be out of state, but they've succeeded in producing um, solar in many different situations. They have that uh, creative aptitude towards looking at unusual sites, whether it's, you know, putting them on water or on mine lands. Um, they have a history of being successful at that and they are under um under um negotiations i will say that uh, i'll be i'll wrap it up here and just say in west virginia there are two energy providers one is um a subsidiary of aep and the other is first energy and in trying to work with those companies to um be active partners I have found AEP is far more amenable and open to that, whereas First Energy just doesn't return phone calls or emails. And they have a plan to be carbon neutral by 2050, but uh, the people that are there just don't seem to be responsive to interest in this in, in their regions because they have they sort of have neighborhoods where they are the ones you have to go to if you're going to have a solar power, commercial solar power. You have to deal with them. And so southern part of West Virginia tends to be AEP. Northern part of West Virginia tends to be more in the first energy uh, neighborhood. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, Tate, did you want to react to that? Yeah, so what I will say is um, I'm excited. So this is what I think is brilliant about Senator Manchin, what was written into the bipartisan bill on the 500 million uh, to be used to incentivize solar development, because what it will do, and I mean, this goes back to Dan, we've covered so much today, which is great, but this goes back to like Dan's comment on Puerto Rico too. The bottom line is just that like when you have incentivization, because the, as much as the solar developers have done great solar development and they've created a lot of jobs, they've had a lot of success, it is not a high margin business by any stretch of the imagination. 
So when you have apprehensive landowners, like Dan described, it's harder for solar developers to be fully incentivized to actually work in those communities. So this is what, and I always say, this is the value of policy and this is the value of government. Whenever, especially like four or six years ago when people would argue with me, like we don't need the federal government, we can do everything on the state land. I, my response was always the federal government is an aggregator and they're an incentivizer, even if it's not, even if it's not fully the cash, even if the cash isn't that much, just the federal government making the announcements and raising the issue is incredibly beneficial. And now here on the mine lands, you're going to have some money every year for the next five years, $125 million each year for five years can, will, will, I'm not even going to say can, will change the landscape of those mentalities on both sides for the developers, you know, help you and it's going to help the landowners all bring the deal together. So that's what I say. That's another like 90% deal where it's there. It should be there. They, everybody needs it, but you need that 10% to help get it over the finish line. So um, that those examples, I think, are really good ones. And, and when I speak about the mining money, the um, the money that will be used for mining lands and go through DOE, um, that's an example of like the projects that we get excited that now probably will happen where they would have been really challenging before. Yeah, great comment, Tate. And I would I would build on that by saying. Um... You know, whatever that mine land number is, we have to multiply it because if it's anything like brownfield grants, they have a historic leverage ratio of almost 20 to one. So for every dollar through the US EPA brownfield grant program, it's leveraged $20 of private sector capital. And so that's that's exactly what we'll see is kind of these seed funds, seed monies go around to these different mine land projects, leveraging huge, huge sums of uh, private sector investment. Um, and that's why everybody loves it, pu uh, public-private uh, partnerships. Everybody wins. Um, okay, I'm going to call on uh, Nicole, who didn't use a question mark, but might have a question about ordinance language at the local level. Um, not sure if she's ready to go or wants to go, but uh, I'll go ahead. Tate, you can see for yourself here, but for our, radio, for our listening audience, it's she's asking about ordinance language that restricts a certain percentage of area within a county um, for solar. So limiting land use, limiting the land use crisis could occur from an, uh, that might occur from an explosion of this utility scale use. Um, Tate, I know you're not a real estate or a dirt lawyer, um, <laughs> which is its own, we're all specialists in the law now, sub sub specialists. Um, but, I, but I mentioned earlier um, the, the power that locals have either at the community level or at the county level. And can you speak a little bit to, to that um, and, and to this larger kind of land use crisis? Because um, people are- Yeah, no, I think out. it's a really good point. And I, so the one thing I will say, and I think this actually, this was in Dan's um, comment before that we didn't touch upon and he didn't mention, but the efficiency of panels and the bottom line is we are seeing significant efficiency gains across the innovative panel um, R&D and really for the panels that are the, I always say um, like our, my niche is like when you are at nine out of 10 and you are ready to go, but there is a gap there, whether it's the tech, whether it's the project gap, but the bottom line is the panels that are at that nine out of 10 all have significant efficiency gains 
And a lot of these panels with significant efficiency gains are also highly beneficial to put on distributed solar. So I just, I know obviously the Virginia Solar Summit is focused on ground mount and is focused on land use, but I will say, don't forget the fact when we're talking about this, that we're not just talking about all ground mount. We are talking about, we're really starting to talk about solar everywhere. One of the other projects that we're working on that when I started it, I always, I always start things earlier and we started this about six months ago, but energy harvesting, which is essentially what's like a solar cell that goes on every, it's IOT, it goes on every appliance in your home that you no longer need batteries and create the waste. So now just keep in mind, I think the best thing to say is that is a possible, that obviously what Nicole's speaking of is a concern, but when we're talking about solar now, it's not your grandmother's solar, right? It's everything and anything. And now there's going to be solar panels in, um, obviously it's been said that in your Tesla or in your EVs, right? So the bottom line is that what we're talking about with solar moving forward is the all of the above of solar. And I think that's really important to keep in mind as things progress. Yeah, absolutely. They've got, coming back to Tesla, they've, uh, they bought Solar City, uh, which hasn't you know, gone too well, but they've they've been innovating with a new type of, of rooftop solar panel. Dragon Scales, which I think Google just installed maybe out west somewhere. That looks a lot cooler. Folks should Google for that. I don't have a picture ready to go, but Dragon Scale solar panels look pretty cool. And they'll be, you know, more beautifully uh, designed into the into our built environment. I think every one of those is a win, um, especially in the short term, because we will see kind of some land, land use pressures. Um, it's it's inevitable, and some some communities will just say no um, for for whatever reason. But I think if uh, with all this innovation in the pipeline and all and our legacy of land use mistakes that have piled up, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of acres of abandoned mine land. You know, just in Virginia, I think it's hundred. There's 125,000 acres of mine land in Virginia. Um, so so plenty plenty of uh, redevelopment to do before we turn over any greenfield acres um exactly okay. exactly there's plenty of redevelopment on in on navy installations and i don't have the exact number in front of me too but there are actually military installations in virginia with extra with excess land too and then you have government access blm land so there's just so many options and i mean whenever anybody gets now i mean i've always done clean tech from a bipartisan perspective and that is, that's our other thing we are known for. But I always say, it's not what you think it is. There are so many other options that go into it. So, and that's really, I mean, that's what we are excited about because we know like, and like you said, we know this is inevitable that there are gonna be land concerns. So that's why we're looking to, how else can we make this happen? Yeah, and I think more broadly, the renewable space, um, We'll bring all kinds of solutions online. Virginia is leading on wind. Um, a new facility announced just this week, um, and the Biden administration announced new new areas off the entire East Coast. And that's really just well, the you know the Danes have been doing it for twenty or thirty years. So we're kind of America's lucky. We're kind of coming in with second, third generation technology. But I I'm longer term. I'm very hopeful for in the twenty thirties or so for tidal and some of the other. There's a lot of 
a lot of power out in the oceans thanks to the moon <laughs> uh, and we're not even we haven't even really scratched the surface of that yet so very very excited about that i want to turn to uh, if he's still with us maybe mr timothy powers from innovatus he has a question uh, specifically about solar tim if you're ready you can turn on your camera and unmute uh, but he might not be he's probably talking he's a busy guy i know and might be working the phones too um so i'll just ask um about the best resources for solar developers in virginia can you drill down to that level tape yeah so i think i mean and i guess if i do see tim on so the best resource for dg solar developers entering the v so are, is it from a development perspective and just the research. So the bottom line is what I will say on the federal side, use the Department of Energy's website. I know this is like so fundamental and I'm sure everybody is do as everybody's done this and I, I don't need to say it, but use the Department of Energy's website. You um, essentially make sure that a re research in these areas actually is not that difficult when it comes down to it. Start with the Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies website. There is a significant amount of good information on there. I will say right now, it's we're still like we are only a year, exactly a year from the Trump administration, right? So, and they took a lot off the websites. Moving forward, use the websites. They will be populated more again. A lot of this information will be on there again. It is important to keep on um, to just honestly Google tickers, Google search engines, like that's what we use to stay up on top of all of this. In addition to, of course, like the paid media that not everybody's going to have. So the bottom line is just like I would encourage those and those initial um, two things and then next. And I know they're not I know they are very fundamental 101 answers. It may not be the best answer. But that, but this is what we use, and this is how we've gotten all of our information. In addition to meetings and outreach, meetings and outreach in DC is really tough right now because everybody's so inundated. It's a lot harder than it was before. Um, but the bottom line is that don't hesitate to use those. There's new tools being developed every day that can be fed, that will all be found through the simple Google alert and even staying with the Department of Energy and staying on top of the Department of Energy's event. It's not my best answer, but hopefully it's, the, it's got something. I know it's important because I think the, one of the key takeaways from today is with all this in flux, you kind of have to stay plugged in and Google makes that easy. Uh, and the DOE is working hard on their website right now. I know the IWG, which we featured on the last episode, they've got a new website, energycommunities.gov. Uh, in Virginia, we just had a huge rebrand. The Vir Virginia Department of Mines, Minerals, and Energy is now Virginia Energy. They have a brand new website with all kinds of new resources. They're adding things to that. And of course, they have their new uh, grant program. Stay tuned for that. That's, that's not necessarily for solar developers, but um, communities will be accessing, accessing those funds and those will be places that you that you will want to invest. But there'll be a lot of other resources as well. Um, they've got a special office that's got some mapping information that you can access. Um, and then also in the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality at the Brownfields program, they have a lot of information on brownfields. 
Um, of course, grants for grant eligible entities like communities, uh, but they also have a new tool that'll be coming out, hopefully, I think maybe December or by January or something like that, uh, kind of a brownfields mapper, um, where you'll be able to kind of look for sites in Virginia, and that'll be available on their website. And you can Google for that Virginia DEQ brownfields, and you will find uh, that, that little suite of information. And of course, stay tuned to virginiasolarsummit.com. We are the substantive solar space. Uh, we've got a, a lot of resources on our website. You can still get our knowledge binder from the last event, which has which is hundreds and hundreds of pages of information, uh, still relevant. And of course, we have a very active blog. You can link through to a lot of the great works by these organizations and agencies that are out there. Um, and we're building, of course, to our next in-person event, uh, the Virginia Solar Summit 2022, where we're going to bring back a lot of great speakers. Hopefully, maybe we can get Tate down from DC and she can give us an update at that point. There'll be a lot of news that breaks then. But of course, we'd love to get together in person and really chew on the substance um, because it, it really does make a difference at the project level as we flip you know, this critical mass from non-viable to viable to flood to total renaissance. Uh, it's, it's a really exciting time. And uh, Tate, I want to thank you for joining us today. Do you have a, a final thought? No, just say, I mean, this is a hard sector. Stay motivated, overcome the obstacles. Um, it'll, it will pay off. Yep. Recognizing uh, well, this is challenging, just stick with it. We are, we are on the cusp. Yeah, thank you for the work that you do, for being an expert and helping us with the sophisticated details. I say all the time, the degree of difficulty may be higher. The, risk it, the risks from climate change and other things are also rising, um, but we can rise to that challenge. And there'll be a lot of economic growth and opportunity along the way, new jobs. I, I think we're already choking on it and we don't even have uh, orbital stations, you know, orbital hotels in space quite yet. So the future is very, very bright. Um, keep up the hard work, Tate. Thank you again, Hal the Knight, for being a supporter of the Virginia Solar Summit live stream. Um, and we're lucky just to get your time too, Tate. Uh, we'll, we'll let you get back to all the hard work that you're doing. Get some honey tea on that voice <laughs> and talk to your next client uh, and, and keep building a future uh, project by project. Thanks again. And you thanks especially... Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, Dan, we have to thank you. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I, do, I, I live for this. Are you kidding? I wake up without an alarm clock. And I really want to thank our uh, live audience who's still sticking with us um, here at the end. We went long. It was a great conversation there. I really enjoyed it. And you can look for this on YouTube. You can You've been listening to the Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast. Thanks again to our special guest, Tate McDonald, attorney and partner in the Washington, D.C. office of global law firm Holland and Knight LLP. And thanks to Holland and Knight for sponsoring the podcast. Visit their website at hklaw.com. Plug into the Renaissance on our website, virginiasolarsummit.com. And remember, the future's as bright as we build it. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.